0: Download the Viator app now and use code VIATOR10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: A lot of what people nostalgically consider eras without tribalism are in fact moments in American history where people of color, and particularly Black people, have been deprived of political power. And so things like Ethnic and racial lines become less salient.
2: Hello and welcome to the Show on the Box Media Podcast Network. My guest today is an old friend of mine, Adam Serwer, who's at the Atlantic and has been writing just great, great stuff. But we know each other from way back. We worked at the American Prospect together back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and there was no Twitter. Uh, But one of the reasons I wanted to have Adam on the show today is I have a lot of discussions on the show about identity politics and political correctness and the zone of issues and debates around that. But a lot of those discussions operate within the boundaries of the conversation as it actually exists, which is to say most of the critique that is being answered is coming from the right. People who feel the left is going too far on identity politics. People who feel campus protesters are going too far on political correctness. And something that has been threading through... Adam's pieces over the past, I'd say, couple of years, is a very interesting version of his critique from the left, that political correctness is operating very powerfully to protect, um, I don't want to say exactly right-wing constituencies, although sometimes, but majoritarian constituencies, that identity politics is something that the majority is practicing and is practicing in ever more clarified and to some degree dangerous ways, but it doesn't get called that in, in a clear fashion. And so... This is a critique I've been wanting to host on the show because I think it's an important thing to understand, even to some of the core concepts in this debate, which don't just go in one direction, they go in a lot of directions. I've been sort of trying to build in different episodes a framework for how to think about the way identity works and for how to think about why some of these issues are coming up now, but to look at them from the perspective of how they operate in power as opposed to how they operate amongst people trying to gain power, is I think a very, very, very useful thing. Um, so I'm glad Adam was here to do the podcast, and I think y'all are really going to enjoy this one. Here is Adam Serwer. Adam Serwer, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: So I got to ask now that you're now that you're in Texas, are you are you afflicted by bedomania?
1: Um. It, <laughs> It was uh, it was definitely. I mean, San Antonio is pretty much as as blue as as Texas gets. Um, there were definitely a lot of folks with Beto signs and Beto bumper stickers and Beto T shirts, but I was not personally afflicted. No.
2: Did it persuade you that Beto twenty twenty is a is a real thing?
1: It might be a real thing. I do think it's a bad idea. I think it was Christopher Hooks who's a. a Texas writer who said Beto is really good at running for Senate in Texas and he should do that. I do think it's a little weird, you know, the comparisons to Obama. You know, the big difference is that Obama actually won his race. I mean, granted he had a, a much weaker opponent, but he was actually in the Senate for a while before he started contemplating running for president. We of course have had congressmen who are presidents. The the most famous of course is Lincoln, but I I wouldn't necessarily say that that uh, that Beto is following that model.
2: I saw this meme going around that was like <laughs> a new hope, and it was a picture of Obama, and then it was the Empire Strikes Back, and it was a picture of Donald Trump, and then it was Return of the Jedi, and it was Beto. And I was like, "Wow, that's not how those movies went." <laughs> it's not. <laughs>
1: Nothing uh, gets Beto, yeah. but
2: but it would have been like
1: Luke was in the third movie too. Yeah, but also like, uh, did, you know, we have the last Jedi now. We know it didn't really work out the way it looked like it was going to work out at the end uh, of Return of the Jedi with the party and the Ewoks. Yeah, you, <laughs>
2: um, yeah, you can you can go deep into the Star Wars analogy.
1: Yeah, you, you could really you could really uh, we could do that all day.
2: All right, so I, I did not actually uh, ask here to talk about Beta. I was just curious about it because I'm not actually in Texas and have been watching all this a bit from afar. Uh, I wanted to start with an essay you wrote. What what? And now, now, a year ago, two years ago, Nationalist Delusion?
1: Uh, it's a little more than a year ago.
2: So I think this is one of the most important political essays um, of the past few years. We'll put it in show notes. Oh, thank I've you. told you this. I think it's great. Um, and you write in it that there, there's this delusion essential to nationalism in almost all of its American permutations, which is that American history is a glorious idealism unpolluted by base tribalism. Can you mm-hmm. talk through what you mean by that?
1: Well, you know, obviously we have the Declaration of Independence that says all men are created equal, and uh, and obviously it does not mean all men. I mean, it, it says that, but it doesn't mean that because we are a country that is founded with explicit provisions for slavery in the Constitution. So this contradiction is basically at the heart of the American idea, and it represents two basic warring impulses, this idea that we are a country uh, for everyone, give me your tired, you're poor, et cetera, et cetera. And this idea that actually what makes us great is this, uh, you know, core white Christian identity that is now being compromised. Um, And I think that people who believe in the latter form of nationalism, typically not always, but often try to tell themselves that that's not actually what they believe in. I mean, the example that I use in that essay is the vice president of the Confederacy who gave this very famous speech. It's known as the cornerstone speech, where he says the cornerstone of our republic is that the African is not equal to the white man and Negro slavery is a positive good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then after the war, he's, you know, he's in prison in Massachusetts and he's writing in his diaries and he's like, oh, that was totally fake news. Um, you know, the reporter wrote it down wrong and I tried to correct it, but he printed it anyway. It, you know, and, you know, Jefferson Davis, when he writes his history of uh, of the war, which is, you know, a, a foundational text of the lost cause, he says, you know, slavery had nothing to do with the war. There's this idea in which you have to reconcile your prejudice towards people who are unlike you with this American ideal of we're all created equal. So
2: one of the things you drew out in that essay, which I think is important for understanding politics right now is that there are certain ideas that operate as a sword in some circumstances and a shield in others, and the idea that America is a country built on idealism and not a country of identities or creeds seems to me to be one of those that, in some contexts, the idea that identity groups are are on some level antithetical to Americanism, is used to stop groups who are being um, oppressed. From, from, from asking for their fair share of the country. Um, and then in the other direction, it's used to kind of wipe out what the majority is often doing when they're protecting their own identity or when they're acting as an identity group, that, that it has this kind of dual effect of erasing identity politics in one direction and rendering it un-American in the other. And I feel like that actually makes it a very slippery thing. It makes it very hard to see what is happening in politics at any given moment.
1: Yeah, I mean I think that's right. I mean the 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 big concept where we see this being applied is this idea of identity politics where it's in typically in punditry it's almost exclusively applied to marginalized groups seeking the constitutional rights that other groups already have. And it's never applied to the majority group uh imposing its will on the minority. So, you know, one of the ways in which, you know, the the typical example that people use often when invoking this is like, why are Dems talking about, uh, you know, equal access to bathrooms for trans people? And the answer is that Republicans, they introduced a lot of anti-trans bills because they wanted to affirmatively discriminate against these people. It's not as the Democrats' Uh, or liberals wanted to have this argument so badly, you know, just so they could call Republicans prejudice. It's that Republicans thought there was an advantage in joining this battle over the rights of this particular marginalized group. And you saw that again with the caravan where Trump very clearly believed that he could motivate his base by telling them they were threatened by this group of brown people coming towards the border and it was such an emergency that they needed to send the army and it was an invasion and all this stuff. I mean th- that is identity politics. But we don't typically characterize it that way because white people are the majority in America and we just think of that – of white identity politics as politics when uh, – and I, I mean we sort of as a collective we as America when we shouldn't because it's, it's – I mean it's a form of discrimination in and of itself.
2: And when that happens, though, it seems to me that it also just distorts what's going on in politics, because one of the frustrations I have in this debate, which has comes up on the show a lot, is that identity politics has become a kind of slur. The idea is that if you are engaging in identity politics, you are intrinsically doing something wrong. You're not either acting rationally or from a universalist perspective, or you're not, you know, taking the evidence fairly, or you're maybe dividing America, even if your claims are legitimate. The fact that some of what we want in politics relates to our identities, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's a normal way of going uh, going through the world. And I think we recognize it in all kinds of other contexts as a banal thing. Now, maybe the claim is a good claim. Maybe it's a bad claim. Maybe what you want makes sense. Maybe what you want doesn't make sense. But the idea that some of our experiences refracted through identity is fine. I really think the way in which identity politics has become a slur has made it impossible to have a reasonable conversation over just like what is the normal work of politics, which is different people and different groups coming forward and saying, hey, like this would make sense to us and then, and then we can have a conversation from there. That, that weaponization does not seem to me to be doing the conversation any favors.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it, one of the reasons I dislike the term is that it's typically used to denigrate uh, marginalized groups seeking equality. I think that, you know, that in, in and of itself is a form of discrimination, as I said earlier. But it, it also just misstates what's happening. I mean, I think there are forms of invoking identity that are sort of cheap and superficial and annoying. I think one of these things is, for example, when Kanye West was going all Trump and people were like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And then the response was, oh, you're racist because you criticize Kanye West. Like, I think that sort of cheap argument that isn't actually related to anything substantive does annoy people. But I think that's distinct from what is typically uh, referred to as identity politics, which is stuff like black civil rights groups seeking to protest police brutality or, or or job discrimination or anything of the sort, where it's actually a group that is marginalized that is seeking to gain rights that other people already have.
2: The thing, though, that I find strange about all of this is that... A lot of things are an identity, right? I, I've been, um, because I started a media company a couple years back, I've been at conferences that are like C-suite executive conferences. And, like, I can tell you, like, C-suite executive, like, those people have an identity. Like, you can pay the Wall Street Journal a bunch of money to be part of their C-suite, like, subscription class. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just saw this the other day. And, like... They're building an identity around C-suite and like C-suite executives, there are certain things they want and certain things they don't care about. But it's an identity. And like if you're rich and you're an executive and you want your taxes lowered, you know, that that is as much identity politics as, you know, anything else we group under the term. Now, again, it may be a good idea, right? Like or may not be, I think, in this case. But it's not adding anything, I think, to the discussion to say that this is identity versus that isn't. I mean, everything in politics is somebody asking for something That they think would be good for them and probably good for their group or good for people like them. And, you know, you can define that group in a lot of different ways, but it just seems to me that we've like reached a point where because we can only see this like a third of the time, we have created this higher bar for marginalized groups to just be heard in a reasonable way than we've created for anyone else because we're calling them identities and calling the other things just politics, and like to your point of this being a form of discrimination, I think it is. Like I think it's a, I think it's a, and I also just think it's a bad habit of mind.
1: Well, I think what we're talking about is really a reflection of a white demographic majority that sees its political desires and impulses as the default, and everybody else's is different, and that's a manifestation of. Uh, centuries of white supremacy. But what it means is that, you know, as I said earlier, white identity politics is just considered politics and any other kind of politics performed by other groups is considered something different from the quote unquote norm. And I think that's just that assumption is just reflected in our political discourse all over the place. And it's simply a result of of that entire concept.
2: I think it's a good segue into talking about the identity politics um, cousin, which is a political correctness debate. And you, you've you written, and I thought it was a pretty interesting uh, paragraph, that what Trump supporters refer to as political correctness is largely the result of marginalized communities gaining sufficient political power to project their prerogatives onto society at large. What a society finds offensive is not a function of fact or truth, but of power. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, there was a time when... You could say things about black people and get away with it because they did not have sufficient political power or media influence or public presence to extract a political cost for that. And what's happened is that as America has grown more diverse, there are a lot more groups who are able to respond to what they perceive as slights against who they are or forms of discrimination or uh, disrespect, they're able to respond to it in a way that forces people who used to be able to say those things without any kind of problem, without being called out, and and force them to pay a cost for it. And and when people are lamenting that the world has become more politically correct, they are in part – I mean, I I, I think, uh, you know, there is an element of this, again, that's that's partially true, which is, you know, maybe you don't know the exact right word for something. Maybe you're just like not quite as educated or up on what the latest proper terminology for something is. That's one thing. But when you see Trump talk about political correctness, he almost always uses it in the context of violence. So he says, you know, we're being too politically correct, which is why we need to torture terrorists. We're being too politically correct in Chicago, which is why it has so much crime, which is a code word for, you know, the cops should really be violating the constitutional rights of Chicago's residents. And so I think that when we talk about political correctness in Trump, what we're really talking about is a willingness to use state violence against minorities or to discriminate against them. And the anger over political correctness is, in part, a frustration over these groups being able to fight back.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get fifteen percent off their first order at Burrow.com slash box. That's Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for fifteen percent off. com slash box,
2: The Trump and political correctness debate always struck me as really telling. Because, look, you and I are both journalists, and we operate in this kind of Twitter and pundit sphere where a lot of conversations exist on the edge of where politics is right now. So it's like a huge political correctness debate over whether or not you should have to use people's preferred gender pronouns. And that is never, never what Donald Trump is talking about, political correctness. No. Like the political correctness you hear about at his rallies are people want to be able to say immigrants are bad, right? And we shouldn't have so many of them in this
1: country. You can't say Muslims are terrorists. You can't say blacks are criminals. You can't say, you know...
2: And I feel like that's like a real tell in this and just like what the conversation is about, that people want to draw the line in all kinds of different places. And I feel like we have like, again, a little bit like the identity politics conversation, defined this in a weird way. But there's always this fight in society over where to draw the line in courtesy. Like, speech is protected, but it's never really socially free. There's all kinds of things I can't say, um, all kinds of things that people would be mad at me for saying, maybe have nothing to do even with race or gender. And I feel like there's this way where people want to, like, hop on the train, but they don't really – they don't mean what Donald Trump means with political correctness. Like, he wants political correctness to rewind back to, like, the 60s. Oh, I would say before the 60s, the 20s. (laughs) Yeah, that might be right. But where a lot of people are, like, upset about what's happening at Yale. Yeah, and those are just super different conversations that we have grouped under the same term.
1: Well, well, that's—I mean, again, that's a reflection that the American media has become increasingly uh, white-collar. So you have all these reporters who are really invested in what happens at elite Ivy or Ivy League schools because they went there. Uh, whereas in the past, you know, there were a lot more reporters who just had high school educations who never went to college, et cetera, et cetera. Free speech, the idea of free speech is that the government isn't supposed to arbitrate these arguments by favoring one point of view or another. But in society, there are always like social – we always have like – we always have a a sort of collective agreement on social limits about what is appropriate to say. And for example, a couple years ago – you know uh Chris Hayes, who we both know, said something about how like not every soldier who is killed American soldier is killed as a hero, and he was absolutely destroyed for it. He had to apologize it was a huge deal, and that you know, that was because people were upset by that. And more people were upset by it than not upset by it. And when you're talking about political correctness, that's really what that is. It's a reflection of who in society has the influence to make it so that expressions that they dislike are socially punished.
2: You've talked about this, I think, very um, sharply in your pieces, which is that political correctness operates most powerfully, not in the places where... There is a debate over whether something should be politically correct, but where there's no debate, right? Where there's an right? assumption. Hillary Clinton, right, where Hillary Clinton talked about deplorables, right? She violated political correctness, but it didn't get called that. It, it was that was just offensive, right. right? Or you know, after the election, when you know there was a big move among pundits, Chris Saliza, I think you 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 uh, quote is talking about this, like the idea that Donald Trump supporters were racist, right? Or or, or he said nothing. Nothing.
1: Nothing was worse. Right.
2: And so, you know, you can frame things more or less carefully. I think the way you frame it in the piece is smart that if, you know, if racism was offensive to these voters, then Donald Trump could not have been elected. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, like that is political, like that is political correctness. Right? You can't say something because it is offensive. Something where you're arguing about what you can say, like I'm not exactly sure what to call that, but that's something weaker than political correctness. Like that is like that is contested.
1: Right. I mean, I think if you look at if you look at Democratic candidates, uh, they're pretty strongly restrained by political correctness or conservative correctness, if you want to call it that. Uh, I mean, I heard a great term for this populist correctness. <laughs> I mean, but but look, I mean, like you could look back at like it's not just, um, you know, it's not just Hillary Clinton. I mean, remember uh, in 2008, Obama said something about Midwest voters clinging to guns and religion. And it was a huge story. And, and basically what we're really talking about is the fact that you cannot really piss off white people in America, like as a group. That is that is something that is very bad for politicians to do. And you can see there being political consequences for politicians who have statewide or nationwide ambitions when they do this. And it's also the reason why Fox News spends all this time – Trying to scare the shit out of old white people by telling them, you know, about the caravan or by telling them that liberals want to take away Christmas or by telling them that the country is demographically changing and they don't recognize it anymore. There is, I wrote about this today, but white people remain a really essential part of the Democratic coalition, but the other groups that are a part of the Democratic coalition have almost no presence in the Republican coalition. So those, so Republicans can essentially denigrate the Democratic base in a way that Democrats simply cannot reciprocate because they still need those people in those Republican leaning groups to vote for them. And so, but we never talk about that kind of that social restriction on speech as political correctness, because it is simply a reflection of the preferences of the long term demographic majority in America. And so it just seems normal to us. It's like noticing that the sky is blue.
2: I think that's a really good way of putting that. And I want to go back for a minute into just like the debate about language, because something you're just making me think about is when I was in junior high, there became a fad in my high school of using the word "kike" as a synonym for cheap, so like you kiked me out of something. And for people who don't know this, like kike is a, a let's say a politically incorrect term for Jewish people. And this was, you know, you could call kids being anti-Semitic. You could call kids being um, transgressive. Like I'm, I'm happy to take either either interpretation. These are twelve year olds, but that went away, right? You can't do that, um, at least in normal company when you're an adult in this country, and. I don't think we have a good language for talking about the process by which that happens because we've kind of diminished the term offensive, um, you know, with all this talk of snowflakes and, and everything else. We have like protected speech in America. We've constitutionally protected speech, but speech is not socially free. It's never been socially free. And it's really never been socially free for everyone or on anything. And it feels to me that all of us maybe, but actually in particular, the left has lost a language or doesn't quite know how to talk um, in an affirmative way. That part of building a decent society is having a thoughtful conversation about what kind of speech is decent. Um, like what kind of speech is courteous. Like what kind of speech is is kind. And and I don't know. I think there's some problem with that. Like political correctness has become like this word that is expanded. I don't think people have like a good alternative description for what they're trying to do. And like. An ability to connect it back to a lineage that is like something we've always been doing in this country, which is saying like, you know, maybe calling Jews kikes like that's that's a bad thing and we shouldn't do it.
1: I actually think the concept you're looking for is respect. Like, yeah, people, people, people want respect. And I think if you respect people in your interactions with them, that crosses a lot of political lines. And I think most people actually are respectful in their daily interactions. We are respectful because That's the normal way to behave and also because it can be perilous not to be respectful to other human beings who are in your physical presence. Online, that changes because you can pretty much say anything to anyone and they can't physically harm you. But I think – When we are talking about all this stuff about pronouns or political correctness, I think on some basic level, we're really just talking about respect. Call people what they want to be called. Refer to people how they want to be referred to. That seems such a, a matter of basic courtesy. It's very strange that we've elevated or or that a part of the country has elevated disrespect to a kind of virtue. And I think that is inseparable from the idea that the marginalized people who are demanding respect in our society, there's a lot of people who feel like they shouldn't have to respect them. They are resentful of the idea that they should respect them. And what you have as a manifestation of that is a president who won election in part because he deliberately and publicly and performatively disrespected the people that his base wanted to see disrespected
2: to try to, to try to take I don't want to exactly go the other side of the argument because I'm not sure I'm, I'm going to channel that correctly but I think some of what people experience here is that the other side of this feels like threat now. And that's particularly true with people who operate in like an online discourse sphere. I think you see a very specific kind of fear around this among people who do a lot of lecturing on college campuses, people who do comedy shows, and people who have large Twitter followings and feel emotionally vulnerable to being attacked online. Mm -hmm. And there's something in this where I think a lot of folks feel, hey, I'm happy to treat other people with respect. But what they're reacting to is a sense that they are now under threat all the time when they weren't before or when they don't feel they should be at all. And so you get into this conversation where people are saying, well, we're not allowing people to speak freely. And by the way, sometimes we're not, right? Like sometimes, and and I do think these things have gone too far, you know, plenty of times. And I'm on Twitter and I think they go too far against me all the time. But there's something about the way that people feel respect is now policed. By a kind of like testing or mobbing or, or like online force that, that is powering the other side of this conversation. And so, like, I don't want to say that I, I don't want to be too glib about this and say what everybody wants are safe spaces. But I do think what people want are safety. Like, I think that the flip of this like idea of people wanting respect is people want to feel safe. And when they start feeling unsafe because society is changing and maybe The protections they had in society are weakening. It creates a very powerful kind of backlash.
1: I mean, look, this is the first time in history where, you know, it's not that shaming is something like collective shaming of an individual human being is something new. We've been doing that throughout human history. I think what's obviously different is now we have the technological means to engage in mass shaming of individuals on a scale that was heretofore impossible. And I I think that it's related to what I said earlier, which is just that when you're online, you actually don't have to respect people in the same way or people don't feel the same obligation to respect people the way that they do in like personal, physical interactions. And I do think that's scary. I don't think it's at the root of our particular political problems at this point, but I do think it's a phenomena that a lot of people find emotionally frightening and disturbing and upsetting but the, obviously, you know, the conversation about political correctness uh, goes back many, many years before uh, the kind of phenomenon you're talking about. But, yeah, I certainly understand. I mean, I hate being at the bottom of a dog Twitter dog pile as much as anybody. It sucks. It also sucks when people who are complete strangers just, like, jump in your mentions to disrespect you or disrespect your family or whatever. There's something to what you're saying about that. I'm just not sure – how, I mean, I, I just don't know how we resolve that problem.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
2: So you and I worked together at the American Prospect, however, eons ago it feels Ten like, years ago. It must have been like, what year did you come to the Prospect? I came in 2008. Right, so it- 2008. So we're like the last generation of journalists who did this before social media really rose up. When you were there, social media was there. I got there in 05. I think that's like a year or two before Twitter really begins. Do you think journalism
1: is better off now? I don't know the answer to that. Question, so I think that there's two separate questions. Is it better off because of social media and is it better off than it was in 2008? I think it's probably yeah, yeah, that's fair. better off than it was in 2008 in terms of like we have <laughs> – the, the industry has figured out some better ways of sustaining itself than were clear in 2008 right before like a million magazines and newspapers died. I, I think that social media is an important journalistic tool that can be used or misused. I think sometimes I fear uh, that people rely on it too much. I I do think it shapes people's perceptions in a way that's distorting from the real world. I mean, one of the things about living in Texas versus living in D.C. is that people talk about different things. They don't talk about... uh, They are not uh, obsessed with politics in the way that they are in a city where it is the main industry. And, And I think you know being on twitter all the time can certainly or being online all extremely online all the time can certainly like warp your perception of how most people are going through the world but i do think it it, it nevertheless has been like a really vital tool for gathering and aggregating information and in some cases for reporting it how do you
2: how do you use it to to gather and aggregate information because i've kind of gotten into this place where i've just stopped reading it i felt i couldn't control its hold over me you know that, that that I wasn't using it in a disciplined way. Like, how do you? Because you seem to me to use Twitter in a more in a more intentional way, certainly than I do. So, what what do you do with it for reporting, not for tweeting out, but like for actually
1: trying to understand
2: what you should write about or think
1: about? Well, I just want to refer to a second that that filling a Twitter has a hold on you. I mean, Twitter is crack for writers, right? Like, it's it's it, writers uh, <laughs> have a deep seated need for affirmation, and Twitter is like. It gives you that, sh- you know, shot of dopamine that is not actually productive work. But so, I mean, part of what I do is separate it from myself, separate myself from that when I need to is I uh, like a lot of people have a lurker account where I don't tweet. and I just read things. But as far as using it for my own work, I follow a lot of people for the purpose of just figuring out what different conversations are happening about certain political things. And what I've found is that, I mean, most of my most valuable followers are people who are extraordinarily historically literate, who try to put modern events in context. The other group of people that I find really helpful just because of the things that I write about are people who are legal experts, who are very helpful for discerning what's particularly relevant about, say, a given Mueller filing. Both of those things are really useful for me. Um, I generally don't, like, find sources on Twitter or anything like that. I'm not the first person they send to the site of a, a mass shooting or a terrorist attack. So it's not like I'm on there being like, hi, I'm Adam Sir with The Atlantic. Can you please, I would love to talk to you. Can you please email me at such and such? But I do find Uh, I I do find it extremely useful for keeping abreast of essentially the kind of substantive conversations that people are having about politics and policy.
2: All right. I'm going to make a strained transition here. So you're going to see how I'm going to do this because there's a piece you wrote that I really want to talk to you about uh, in in the time we have left. Many people say that Twitter (laughs) increases tribalism. (laughs) <laughs> and you're you, were, you were at a, I talk about tribalism or group identity etc a lot on the show, and I'm writing a book on it and thinking about it a lot. And you're at this, I think, pretty interesting piece that America doesn't have a tribalism problem; it has a racism problem. Can you talk a bit about what the thesis of that was?
1: So, I mean, we we've heard this argument about tribalism very frequently in the Trump era. It's often invoked. I object to it for a number of reasons. But one of them is that I feel like it essentially denies responsibility for what's actually happening. There's only one of the two major parties that resembles a coalition based on religious or ethnic lines. The Republican Party is is a party that is almost entirely made up of white Christians. And the Democratic Party can simply not be described as a tribe. It is ideologically heterodox there are many liberals conservatives and and moderates in the democratic party the idea that a college student in in brooklyn is part of the same tribe as a service worker in south carolina who goes to church every sunday it, i mean that's not really it, these people are not part of the same tribe they are in fact part of a multi ethnic multi religious Coalition, and part of the problem with American democracy at this moment is that one of the two parties, the one that resembles a, a coalition based on racial and ethnic lines, has decided that that multiracial coalition is in fact illegitimate, and has sought to deprive it of political power not through voting but through restricting the electorate or changing the rules so that those people cannot uh, cannot actually govern or cannot or, or are unable to obtain power. There's nothing resembling... You know, to look at Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, for example, Donald Trump ran his campaign essentially promising state violence against demographic groups associated with the Democratic Party. He wanted a national stop and frisk, and, and and he was an advocate of police brutality. He wanted mass deportations and to revoke the status of young undocumented immigrants brought to the U.S. as children. He wanted to ban Muslims from the United States. There is nothing that Hillary Clinton was proposing that resembles a argument for violence targeted at an element of the Republican coalition, say, she's not saying we are going to revoke the citizenship of white men who commit far-right terrorist attacks. Like there's, there's simply nothing like it. And that asymmetry is a result of the fact that our issue with democracy is not tribalism, but racism. It is the idea that it is legitimate to deprive these minority voters who are being manipulated by, you know somehow by Democrats, they're on a plantation. We can disenfranchise. It's justifiable to disenfranchise them because after all, they're not thinking for themselves anyway.
2: So let me try to take... I don't want to exactly call it the other side of this, but 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 let me try to push on it a bit, because this gets it a tension that I'm honestly having trouble resolving in the book I'm trying to mm-hmm. one day write and finish, which is two things seem to me to be happening simultaneously. One is that there is a genuine asymmetry between the parties, um, and and as you talk about uh, sort of some of what you're talking about, this is great um, book by Matt Grossman and Dan Hopkins, Asymmetric Parties, I think it is, um, which is makes some of these make some of these arguments as well, and they've become different. And I think they're morally different and they are acting in different ways on the national stage. And one of them nominated Donald Trump for president and one of them didn't. Like they are different. The Republicans and Democrats are different. But on the other hand, something happening is that the two sides are becoming way better sorted. So what you were saying about the Democratic Party now being this very multi-ethnic coalition and the Republican Party being white Christians, the two parties were less different on that score. 40 or 50 years ago. And they were less different ideologically and geographically and, you know, religiously and on pretty much everything you can come up with. And so the Republican Party has become something very specific and narrow. In a way, the Democratic Party, in some ways, has become a broader thing than it used to be. It is a case that they're sorting much more into coalitions that see themselves as having unified ideas about the world. And that one of the things that is happening is that whether you are sort of for a diverse America or Afraid of a more diverse America has become mapped on to party. And so the way in which he's like kind of super party identities or like what Liliana Mason calls mega identities are deepening, that also seems like a problem. It feels to me like we have one problem of like the Republican Party is a problem and another problem of sorting is escalating the stakes of politics year by year, election by election. And it isn't exactly clear how or where this process ends. Do you think those are both problems or do you think like the second one just really isn't a problem?
1: This is really complicated. I think that a lot of what people nostalgically consider eras without tribalism are in fact moments in American history where people of color and particularly black people have been deprived of political power. And so things like ethnic and racial lines become less salient. I mean, I think about, you know, during the Gilded Age, um, you know, they talk about the era of good feelings. And like after Reconstruction, the, the sort of issue of black American rights is set aside as both North and South agree that the South can disenfranchise black people and strip them of their rights and we're going to just And the North agree to just move on to other things or like after 1924 where you know there's all this upheaval over immigrants from places like Italy and Eastern Europe Jewish immigrants and then they shut the door and then you know the the sort of post-war World War II consensus emerges from that and I think like that kind of peace is not something that's necessarily desirable. I I think what's desirable is a country in which, you know, diverse groups of people are capable of sustaining a functioning democracy and are not trying to disenfranchise each other or strip each other of power or permanently marginalize them from the electorate. And I think that I would not describe the absence of tension if the absence of tension simply means one group completely dominating another as a, a positive situation, if that makes any sense.
2: Now, do I think that makes sense? I think it's true. One of the scariest arguments I've read about American politics recently, uh, it's in How Democracies Die. And their basic argument is that the way American politics is stable and feels quote unquote, peaceful in times of um, stagnation of racial equality. And American politics is unstable and feels volatile in periods of racial progress. And one way of thinking about, which I think is analytically correct, this kind of period of low polarization and low, you know, quote unquote, tribalism that we had in the 20th century is that the mixed parties suppressed Debate over race. You know, you had a Democratic Party that had Dixiecrats, you had a Republican Party that that, that was mixed. And so we didn't move on these. And then everybody looks and says, oh, you know, look at that. The two parties are able to get along. I think that's all true. Everything you say is completely true. And now it's sorting. Right. And now now what we're having is the ability because like the ideas are going along party lines, we're having the ability to really have fights about them and like debate them and discuss them. And like you have Barack Obama and then you have Donald Trump and, you know, it's getting sorted and it's going to escalate tensions in politics. And I, I actually think what you just said at the end there is really one of the hard questions right now, which is. I think we are really tuned to think that escalating tensions in politics is bad. But maybe if you have a lot of injustice, it's good. Like maybe maybe a more kind of fractious, angry, bitter, tough politics if that's what it takes to at least like look at some of this stuff is good. Now you can imagine it going bad, right? Depending on how it on how it all shakes out, but if the alternative is actually that we ignore this stuff, Maybe what we want is a more polarized, more sordid, more conflictual American politics. Maybe that's the price of any kind of progress.
1: Right. I mean, I think the question is, why are people polarized? I, I don't think polarization is in and of itself necessarily a problem. I think it's maybe a symptom of a larger problem, and that's the problem that should be addressed. And I think, you know, I wrote about this uh, a little while ago right after Tim Scott, the, the Republican Party's only black senator torpedoed the nomination of a guy who was a Jesse Helms aide and and basically spent his entire career trying to keep black people from voting. And my argument was basically like this actually shouldn't be a hard call. The Republican Party should consider it abhorrent that this guy did this. And it's actually it's a symptom of America's backsliding democracy problem that one of the two parties considers it legitimate to try to disenfranchise the other party's voters. This only ends happily if the Republican Party essentially becomes a more diverse party. Until the Republican Party has to be responsive to diverse constituencies, you know, they're going to behave in a manner that considers the other party with its multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious coalition to be illegitimate. And we know this in part because, you know, we saw it. A hundred years ago when the when the Republican Party was the pluralistic party, the party of diversity, and the Democratic Party was the party of the white man, and the reason that the Democratic Party changed is that they became beholden to a constituency that was supportive of American pluralism, and that was black voters and that's really the only way that that I think this ends, you know, in a happy way. But this feels
2: to me like the argument for pessimism, actually, and the argument that we do have a party. I don't love the term tribalism, but but we'll use it for here, like a party tribalism problem, which is that as you continue merging all these fights into one fight organized along party lines, you radicalize people more than they might otherwise have been around some of these issues. So I think a lot of the voting rights stuff speaks to this. I think it is really dangerous and grotesque that the Republican Party has become a party that understands and many of its leading politicians have said like accidentally or or even on the record in different states that if more people vote, it's bad for them and that it's become a party that is like actively trying to make it harder for um, non-white people and younger people to, to vote in this country. And, you know, the closest thing to a defense of that you get is that. They're not trying to be racist. They're just trying to win. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that what you have are the parties sorting along these lines, it escalates the stakes of conflict around this because it merges the stakes of conflict around, say, racial equality with the conflict around taxes, Mm -hmm. around um, reproductive rights, around all these different things. It's like it, it expands the zone of conflict. So you have a coalition where it's like, well, if you believe in other things the Republican Party believes in, if you're worried about whether or not People say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. You also kind of have to get on board with, you know, Trump's views on immigrants and like everything we know about people's psychology is that they will like if that's their party and that's their team, they'll like conform to fit the rest of it. Like there is this really interesting d- phenomenon of Democrats over the past twenty years becoming way more racially liberal mm-hmm. um, than they were, say, in the Clinton era. And so, like, that's the thing that I think is scary about this. That like on the one hand. I see. I can see how more mixed parties suppress a lot of these issues. But on the other hand, as you sort the parties, unless Democrats just get like the the votes to just win, which I think is you know you can imagine a kind of California um a California esque future. Unless that happens, you have this backlash effect again uh, along Republicans, and like I think you see it with them getting on board with Donald Trump.
1: Well, the only thing I can say is is that these victories are rarely permanent, no matter who prevails. I mean, yeah. you know, in the nineteen in, in 1924, they created an immigration bill that explicitly uh, sought white immigrants, and in 1965, they got rid of it. And, and that getting rid of it and, and creating a new immigration system is part of why we have an America that's as diverse as, as it is today. The Democratic Party in the 1880s successfully and completely disenfranchised black people in the South that victory looked very permanent until it wasn't. You know, I think, I don't know what's going to happen, but I would say that history suggests that whatever happens, it's not going to be permanent.
2: Let me ask you to be speculative on one thing, and then then I know I need to let you go um, for studio reasons, but you, you were saying that the only way this ends happily is if the Republican Party becomes a more diverse party. When you imagine a world in which that happens, what are the forces that make it happen?
1: Honestly, imagine, like, a second-term Trump like doing an immigration deal where he does an amnesty, but also gets to build a wall. You know, it it, it sounds crazy or something like that, but, you know, that's, that's obviously an outlandish scenario. But the truth is, is that it was insane that during the Roosevelt administration, this party that was made up of the most ardent white supremacists in the country, as a result of Roosevelt making the lives of black people in the South materially better, suddenly found itself reliant on black voters in a way that Uh, You know, completely weaken the power of those white supremacists. So, you know, I think it's hard, you know, I think it's hard to argue that the Democratic Party of the 1930s was less racist than Donald Trump. So if that party can change, if that party can become the party of Hubert Humphrey and Lyndon Johnson. Then, you know, I mean, it's just it's it's not actually as crazy to imagine that the party of Trump could become something different from what it is now.
2: Do you buy into the the sort of reverse of that theory, which is that if Republicans experience a couple pretty bad defeats in a row that, you know, they might. They might change a strategy, like sort of go down the road of the 2012 autopsy.
1: Yes, I do. I think that if Republicans suffer enough significant political losses, they will recalibrate their strategy.
2: And so then, uh, let me ask you the question we used to end the podcast, which is, in part because you've been doing some, I think, deep reading on American history recently. What are three books you think people should read to kind of understand what's going on here?
1: I would say that the three books that you should read is The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter. Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois, and Strangers in the Land by John Hingham. Adam Soar, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You can find more of Adam's
2: work at The Atlantic. He's on Twitter. He's he's at all the places. If you've made it this far in the podcast, hopefully you've enjoyed it. You should jump on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you do your podcasting and give us a quick review. It does a lot to help the show. Thank you, as always, to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner, The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back
1: in a couple of days.